0: listener production. Having that understanding just allowed me to be more purposeful in how my relationships unfolded as opposed to just being carried along on this what sometimes felt like volatile and like emotional craziness where like there would be huge amazing highs and then crazy lows and I always felt like I was a passenger in my relationship and now I'm in the driving seat and that's really empowering.
1: So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. Laura Byrne and Brittany Hockley are best friends who also happen to host Australia's biggest female-fronted podcast, They're now authors with their fabulous self-help book, We Love Love, an unfiltered A to Z of modern romance and self-love. The pair first bonded, sharing their experiences after being contestants on separate seasons of The Bachelor. And that supportive friendship blossomed into an incredibly successful media partnership. And I wanted to talk with these strong and smart women about how they've become such a force congratulations on your book.
2: Thank you. Thank you, I, Jess. Oh, that I,
1: actually genuinely means a lot. Oh, I loved it. There's so much that's in there, but what comes through to me in spades is love. Obviously, love is in the title, but the love that you have for one another. Why do you love each other so much? We spend so much time together. Like Brit and I, we spend
0: more time together than even time that I get to spend with my partner, Matt. And because of the nature of the work that we do, we have to go deep on a lot of personal stuff pretty often. We always are unpacking like the things that we think about, something that's happened in the world or how we feel about something or where we're at in our relationships. It's kind of like we have our own little therapy session that goes on between us, but we have this amazing relationship where we're the closest of friends, but also we're business partners. So it's an incredibly unique relationship that we have.
2: I think it works so well because we are in different walks of life. Like Laura's got two little kids and a long-term relationship. She's getting married. I'm single, dating, no kids, free. So I think that's why it works because we're not travelling on this journey together. We're chaos and we're doing all these different things, but we have so much to come back and take from each other and teach each other and talk about that I think that's why it works so well.
1: Well, you've got the different perspectives, don't you? Mm. And that's what sort of struck me. You were talking in the book about feeling overwhelmed. Mm. And what I loved from both of your perspectives, I mean, Laurie, you were talking about the overwhelm as a mum of little people, because that's exhausting. But then you were talking about the overwhelm that you feel though, as a single person.
2: Yeah. And it's funny because all of my friends have kids, my family, my brothers and sisters. I know the chaos that it brings, but I guess I felt like I couldn't express that I was overwhelmed because I felt that like everyone is more overwhelmed than me because they have kids. So you you, you internalise that and you feel this level of guilt. I can't complain about being tired. I can't complain about being upset, depressed, stressed. But it's I not a competition
1: it. though. Totally. Exactly.
2: And that's what I wanted to drive home in the book, that we don't have to compare ourselves to everybody else. And it's all relative. And it's if you are feeling that for whatever reason, you're allowed to feel that.
0: And also you can have space for both. Like one person could on paper be more overwhelmed. They could have more work on their plate. They could have more parenting duties. They could be more literal things that they need to do, but someone could have more mental overwhelm. And for whatever reason, they're not coping with that. And just because the two of you aren't coping doesn't mean that one person needs to be not coping the most. And we do that with our friends. Sometimes we do that with our colleagues where we're like, oh, you're complaining about how you feel, Well, you don't even know the half of it. And I think we need to stop competing on that
2: point. Exactly. Like the internal eye roll when you, uh, someone yes. complains to you and you feel like being like, like, you don't even know, you know. So that's what we wanted to drive home in that
1: chapter. Which you have done, I think, so incredibly. Mm. There was a lot of things that opened my eyes. <laughs> I'm a little bit more... I don't want to say older because my beautiful producer, Nick, always says, don't say you're a granny. But sometimes I do feel like a bit of a granny <laughs> when I Just, read sometimes chapters. I feel like a granny. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, you probably could have felt that a few times in this book. <laughs> but when I'm reading, well, okay, nudes, about nude pictures, I just think, thank God, I'm not dating now. When was the last time you
0: sent a nude? That's oh, never, what I want to know. Never once. Never. never you never even was like, "Hey, hubby, no. look at this. I look
2: fire today." No. Also, Jess, don't say thank God you're not dating right now because some of us in this room <laughs> still are dating. But that's so what I, I need some I mean. optimism. Yes. No, of course not,
1: Brittany. That's the point. I was falling in love, having different relationships or situationships. I mean, that's a whole new word which we can get into later. Before. There were iPhones before the internet. So for me to hear about nudes...
2: Imagine sending a nude, right? You would have had a film camera. You would have taken it. You take it to your local store. You get it developed. Some pubescent 14-year-old boy (laughs) is going through your photos being like, well, your nudes are ready for pickup." Then you have to go pick them up. But it's it's a dangerous world we live in and I think that's what we wanted to drive home to. Sending nudes, great. That's okay if that's what you want to do. But be hyper-aware that once something is out in the stratosphere, it is out there. And you have to be very trusting of whoever you're sending it to. You have to understand that there could be a risk that it could end up somewhere else. You know, I was in a long distance relationship. because you
1: sent one to Laura, didn't you, to get her sort of approval? It was very much unsolicited.
0: I'd like to have that on the record. I think you said, I took a good nude. And then the next message was the nude. And I was like, that's the most recent one I've been sent in a long time.
2: I was still on the fence because it's not something I did. So I thought like, how can I decide if I send this or not? And the only answer was obviously to send the nude to Laura So my friends say, A, is this hot? Rate this out of 10. B, should I send this to Jordan? And within two seconds, there was like a, that has to go out immediately. She was like, send that. I
0: mean, Brittany's seen like half of my birthing videos and whatnot, oh. so like seeing a strategic nude really didn't,
1: I mean, it was not that obtrusive to be no. true. <laughs> That's great. I can't even believe I'm asking this question. I've never asked anyone this question. Go for it. About dick pics. Oh, yeah. Because I've never... Of course, had a dick pic and and I was like gobsmacked. Do you want to read? No. But how I I can give you one if you want. No, don't want to see it. But I don't think penises are attractive. No, no, not alone. A soft penis isn't attractive. And even a hard penis, I don't want to see it. Like in a photo. No. But but anyway, I'm digressing. But the other thing that made my jaw drop was that you said they're curated. Like people save their. Best oh. pictures. So this was a story. What the relationships? Well, I'll probably
2: repurpose my Picasso nude at some point. Like, it was uh, really? Great. No, so I'm joking. I, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote in the
1: <laughs> Your laugh
2: rivals mine. That, that is my favourite part
0: of the podcast episode. <laughs> Jess, your laugh is phenomenal. <laughs> okay, so I wrote a story in the book. It was around the very first time I ever got sent a dick pic. I was in a situation ship. It was like a long distance thing. We both lived in Bondi at the time. But he had gone overseas and he was in L.A. And he'd been away for a couple of weeks and the messages were getting spicier. And he asked me to send him a topless photo. And I, at the time, was like, I'm at work. Like, it's uh, no, like, how the hell am I going to do that? And then he was like, just go to the bathroom. And I was like, we go to the bathroom, sit in a cubicle and take a photo of my boobs. You did, didn't you? No, I didn't. But then I was like, trying to bide myself time. I was like, okay, why don't you send me one? (laughs) Anyway, so then he sends me this picture two minutes, literally, not even two minutes, 30 seconds later, ding. And I was like, oh, that was real quick. Like, what did he do? Just pull his pants out and take a photo down there? Anyway, I opened it up and there is this photo of him in all his manhood standing in his apartment with a rock hard erection. And there was like the surfboard that was familiar to me behind him. And I was like, hold on, you're in LA. And that photo was taken in bond. You just sent me an upcycled dick pic. Did yes. you actually say what's going on? I was like, wait, you literally never took this for me. Like, this was taken for someone else and it obviously worked well. So now you've sent it to me. And he was like, Oh, yeah, like, as though that wasn't even a big deal. And I was like, That's so weird. That's so weird. But yes. apparently, lots of people do it. They have folders of their best nudes so that, you know, if you're at work and you're not feeling particularly sexy and then you're like having this little sexy text message on the side, you can just be like, Oh, yeah, here we go. Look, I don't
2: think it's the oh. end of the world if you <laughs> do. But I don't think anyone, I don't think you're alone. Nobody that I know likes receiving dick pics. I don't, I don't want to, it does nothing for me.
1: I don't want to see it. I don't think you want to see it. It's sexy. And and I, again, it's a generalization, but I think as women, our sort of sexual life is more about fantasies and mood and feeling as opposed to, I don't want to see that. (laughs) I'm with you, Jess. I don't want any of (laughs) it. Okay, well,
2: neither of you are single right now. So (laughs) this one's
1: in my, this ball goes my park. I suppose in a way almost, Laura, I'm a bit with you that if the house is clean and the dishwasher is empty and maybe my husband's cooked dinner, which he doesn't, but all of those things are <laughs> and more likely listening. to get me in the mood.
0: I think that also goes back to the whole feeling of overwhelm. Like when your partner steps up to the plate and they've done all the things not that because like they're doing it out of duty but just because they they also want to be in a house that's well taken care of you're matching each other 50/50 in the workload you're also then matching each other 50/50 in the mental load that to me is very arousing. like when i'm not expected to do everything in the household and i am i hate saying lucky because it's I, i'm not lucky i just I chose well i chose a man who is he is incredibly hands on with the kids he's incredibly hands on with the house but I'm so grateful for that because I know
1: that that's not the norm in everyone's relationship. Well, of course your husband is Maddie J. Because that's what I'd love to talk about, The Bachelor mm. and reality TV because what I think is extraordinary again about the two of you is that you were on different series mm. of the show, but you bonded over that shared experience, didn't well, I was you?
2: Lucky we we're on different seasons, wasn't it? Yeah, it'd be, I
0: don't know if we would have the same relationship or friendship <laughs> if Britt had been making out with Matt on my season. Let me
1: ask you about that though, because that's something I've always grappled with when I've watched that show. That I would feel so jealous, and I don't think I could bear to then hang out with a whole lot of people. In a house afterwards, when they've been kissing someone that I really like, like I'd want to, I don't know, push them off the bunk bed or poison them or do something.
2: Like poison—that's a bit extreme. We, we're literally
1: in bunk beds as well. Like yeah, for we anyone are. who doesn't
0: know, in the Batch Mansion, it looks all beautiful on screen, but the behind the scenes is far from luxe. Um, it's all, a hostel. All the girls live in bunk beds. Yeah, it truly feels like you're on Kentucky, like a bad version of Kentucky. Um, look, it's a—it's a weird environment. I think for me. I had been dating for a long time and I kind of was very used to the fact that most men and women who are dating are seeing multiple people at the same time. There's very few people these days who go on a date and they're committed from day one to seeing where that goes and then choosing someone else. So in my mind, I was like, well, look, he's pretty much just doing what every single guy I'm dating has done to me, except... He's being fully transparent about it.
1: But you're seeing them. Yeah, you're hanging out with them. But the
0: difference was, it was like, at least I know. Like, I know he's not having sex with them. I know that it's only a kiss. And then he's exploring whether or not he has emotional feelings for them. I think with us... There were some girls that I really connected with and became really great friends with on the show and I didn't feel jealous. I was like, "You know what? You are an awesome chick and if he chooses you, we'll probably still be friends and I'll sleep in the bunk bed in your spare room." Um and then there were other people that I felt more jealous of, but it was probably because I didn't have the friendship with them and that kind of maybe brought out more of my insecurities, but the show absolutely makes you jealous. Absolutely it makes you feel insecure. It makes you question or not whether they're invested in you or they're invested in someone else because you have this amazing time with them and you no, know, Matt and I, we had the first, it was so long ago, we had the first kiss of the season and then we would have these incredible, like really beautiful times together. And then the next day, another girl would have come home and been like, I did this and I did that. And you would take one step forward and two steps back in self-preservation because I'd go, oh, okay, well, it, it's not real. It's not real. And it wasn't until that very final day when he was able to say how he felt about me that that's when I was like, okay, cool. It's real now. And we're going to start fresh from this point.
1: The only way I can describe how I feel towards you is, Laura, I love you.
0: (laughs) I love you too. I think you are so perfect.
2: I was so ready for you to break my heart. I think the opposite for me. Ah. Oh. Well, I mean, it's just a personality thing, but I'm not a jealous person. I I never have been. And I went in with a very practical attitude. And that was if he wanted to be with someone else, that's okay because I don't want to be with someone that doesn't want to be with me. So I genuinely wanted him to find out which connection he wanted because I didn't want a fake relationship. I wanted to know that at the end of the day, he knew everyone and he
1: chose me, which we know he didn't, but he almost did. Let's just back up a bit. For those who perhaps aren't as familiar with it, essentially, I mean, <laughs> the honey badger, he didn't choose either of you. And mm. I reckon that was gutless of him to just go, I'm not choosing anyone. I have a heavy heart right now in Brittany. I, it's both of them, It's both of you are amazing women. And, and I just, trying to, trying to form a way in that cloud is... It's too much for me right now.
2: It was an unusual choice, yes. especially because as far as our conversation was going, it was me that until the morning of, <gasps> you know, and that's a lot of that wasn't shown obviously, and it does not to be clear like it does not bother me now. I'm so he's just had a baby. I'm so happy for him. He looks so happy and that's what all I would want for him.
1: But See, that's very generous of you to do that I would be I know being bitter and twisted isn't good (laughs) but it's a great look Jess there's only so much hate you can hold on to Jess that you gotta let it go I
0: also I think you know in some ways that was handled poorly um on his part in terms of like explaining the reasons why because he kind of just like disappeared and didn't do any press or media so people were left making up their own assumptions as to why but also I look at it from the flip side I'm grateful that, and I don't want to speak on your behalf, Britt, but, like, I'm grateful that he didn't choose any. If he wasn't sure, don't just pick someone to, like, tick a box and then try and make it work because you've got to just be a happy couple in the media for a couple of months. I think that... Totally, he, but
2: don't lead someone down the garden path. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he
0: he made what was also a very difficult decision. He probably just didn't need to make you so, uh, so sure that it was going to be you, I guess. But,
2: yeah, like, look at us now.
1: Yeah, we are. This is the real love story from The Bachelor. (laughs) But the unexpected one. That's so true. And I think that's what's so beautiful. So how then did you meet?
0: When I was, when my season was going to air, Alex Nation, she reached out to me. So Alex Nation was the winner of the previous season. She was with what's his name? Richie. Richie. Um, And she copped a lot of abuse from people online, but also from the media. uh, And it really affected her. And there was a period there where I was copying it, and she reached out to me. Now, she had figured out that I was the person at the end purely from the edit. I think if you look really closely at the edit and you have been in that situation before, you can kind of figure out who the person is. Once
2: you've been on the show, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, you, 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 watch you know. You tricks. Like, they're coming third, they're second, yeah. they're
0: so, first. So she reached out to me, and it was like a real duty of care. And she sort of said, you know, um, if you need anyone to talk to, I'm here the mob always moves on and that really really helped me in that time and and it really helped our relationship as well because there was a little while there where when the show finished and the australian public were divided i thought how can our relationship ever survive if people hate us being together so much even though there was lovely people and
1: it, of course it felt loud because and how do you deal with that because i was quite shocked to discover in reading your book that You had to manage all of that social media Mm. yourself. So you're reading all of this hate. And Mm. unfortunately, it's within our human nature, I think, we focus on the negative, that, yes, there were lovely things and lots of love for you both as a couple, but then we read the negative stuff and you hold on to that. Totally.
0: How did you...
1: And it was. Managed that. It was of a different time because I don't think that that's the
0: way that it's managed now. But at that time, we had full access to our social media. And the only kind of guidance we were given was to just block and delete and ignore it and not engage. But we're so negatively geared as people that when we read something that's nasty, you could read 10 awesome comments about yourself. But the one thing that's horrible is the thing that you hold on to. So just back to kind of how we then connected through The Bachelor, we then got a year down the path, and Matt and I were so solid. The mob well and truly had moved on and we were watching the season play out and I just knew from the edit that Brit was at the end and I had said to Channel 10, if anyone needs anything, if anyone just needs to speak to someone, it doesn't matter where they've placed, let them know that I'm open to speaking to them. And there was a real sort of like, oh no, don't get involved, like we managed this. But I reached out to Brit because she was copying it online and, and I just said, look, if you need to speak to anyone, I'm here. Um, I don't know the outcome, but also I just want you to know, it probably feels like everyone hates you right now and they don't. Um, and then within, I was like, here's my number, no pressure if not. And she within not even press sent. Five <laughs> minutes, <laughs> Britt was on the phone calling me and then that's kind of where the friendship came from.
2: I actually remember it went something like, because it was at the very end and I was getting a lot, they want it to be a quite volatile ending. So they they play something out, people start to pick you as a character, you know, pick who you want to win and... You, you become a character. You're not a real person anymore. Yeah. And I was getting a lot of hate. And I got a message from Laura that said, I can only imagine you haven't left your house in days because they're a paparazzi. You haven't left your house in days. You haven't gotten out of bed. You're crying. You're eating an excessive amount of food. This is my number if you want to talk. And I called her and I was like, I, is this candy camera? I was like, how are you watching me? Mm-hmm. Like ice cream buckets next to me. Haven't left my bed. And, and the friendship just started like that. We started to catch up. And then not that long after... I, I knew I always wanted to do a podcast and I, I just never met the right person. And then I met someone as, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast. <laughs> of course <laughs> you can. I met someone as fucked up as I am and I was like, you're <laughs> it. I was like, you're in the it. best possible way. I was like, oh my God, like this is the this synergy. Is it. This is it. And then that's that was literally the birth of Life Uncut.
1: I'm not a swearer. I don't mind you swearing, but I, I'm not a swearer. But but I agree with you in the sense of we're all s- Slightly effed up. Oh, yeah, we are. Thank <laughs> you. Oh, we can, Thank we you for saying say that, say that, that for me. Up. You're slightly are but, but all No, but we're all, we all have our stuff. Absolutely. And, but the problem is I think people feel they've got to hide it yeah. and sort of project this facade to the wider world. But why I think both of you have connected so beautifully and built such an incredible brand and successful podcast and business is you cut through that crap and people can... Sort of see part of themselves in both of you, and they everyone goes, oh thank goodness, mm. it's not just me. It's this is what I'm talking about, or thinking about, or worrying about, or stressing about.
0: Do you know it's interesting you say that because when the show very first finished, and we were thrust out into this like, okay, you're this reality TV couple who have to be like the perfect pinup couple, but also I looked at people like Anna Heinrich and Snazana, and they are just. Beautiful, well put together. Always wear gorgeous designer labels. Always look amazing in like in any sort of candid paparazzi shot. And then there was me, and I was like, I don't fit the mold. I don't fit what I thought the mold was for this bachelor person. And for a while there, on on Instagram specifically on social media, I was trying to be very perfect. Like I would only post photos where I looked a certain way. You know, I would use the the smoothing tools to be like, let's get rid of my melasma or my pigmentation. I I wanted to look perfect and then it would really get me down because I'd receive messages from people which were negative messages it might have even been something about the way I looked or what I'd done and I was like this is literally as perfect as I can be and it's still not good enough for people and that really really rocked my self-esteem and it was I don't know what the turning point was like I've always thought like what was that catalyst like what was the shift and I think maybe it was becoming a mum um but there was something that really changed in me where I was like do you know what I just don't care anymore. If people don't like me for being me, then I'll lose some, but I probably will gain the people that are my community, that are my people. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I have no qualms in talking with no makeup on,
1: with ba- with breast milk down my shirt. Like I just don't care anymore. Well, it doesn't matter as much. And another part that really struck me reading your book was when you spoke about how, for a brief moment, you dabbled in a bit of botox and filler Absolutely. because you were sort of buying into this criticism and was it your brother or a friend or someone who basically said what are you doing <laughs> it was my brother in law i don't even know if he
0: realizes this um so i was away in new zealand and i had i had gotten like a little bit of filler in my lips i had gotten um botox in my jaw and botox in my forehead and i had what else had i done i think i'd gotten some filler in my cheek like i'd literally within the space of 6 months i was like I I need to look better, whatever that was. I didn't want to be different, but I needed to be me, but better. Um, And I was obsessed by it. Like I, every time I looked in the mirror, I'd be like, oh, I don't like this about myself. I don't like this. And that was really messed up for me because I'd never done that pre the show. I'd never, ever been so focused on my imperfections, but because other people had focused on my imperfections and other people were so quick to say things that were negative about me. You know, I, I would look in my mirror and I'd be like, I never hated my nose before, but this person said I should hate my nose. Now I hate my nose. So anyway, I did all I did these things. This is going back about five years ago now. And the first year that Matt and I were together, we went on a holiday to New Zealand and I sent a happy snap of me and Matt to my sister. And my sister wrote back and she said, Mikey, which is my, my brother-in-law, had said to her, what has she done to her face? and i don't think either of them meant it in how brutally that came across but i i got the message and i remember reading it and i remember like looking back at the photo and i was like i don't i don't i don't know why i don't know why i'm doing this i don't like myself anymore i don't feel any less insecure i don't think i look any better and that was a really important turning point for me where i just went okay i'm going to be me and i'm not and, and I, I don't want anyone to think that like I have anything against plastic surgery. If you're doing it for I have you, Botox. I
1: yeah.
0: have Botox. And I still get Botox from time to time in my forehead. But the thing is, they're the things that I'll do for me. But I was trying to change the way I looked to be better. But the problem was is I didn't know what better was. I didn't know what the end goal was. Why was I even doing it? And it was because I thought I needed to be better to be more liked by other people. And that's when I really assessed how messed up that
1: is as a whole concept. And... There's so much to unpack there, and I'd never thought of it this way. Where you talk about you have to love yourself mm. before you can love someone else, but in fact, that's not how really you see it. I mean, like
2: yes and no. It's a bit of an uphill battle, isn't it? It's like you you do want to love yourself so that you are you feel whole and you are ready for someone else to come into your relationship. You don't want to you don't want to feel like there's a piece of you missing that can only be filled by somebody else. And I say that because, you know, I've been single the better part of 10 years. I've, I've had one relationship in that time with my recent ex, but like I've been on my own a long time and it, it takes a long time to be okay with that. And I am, I'm very happy on my own. Do I want somebody to come and love me? Absolutely. Do I need that person to come and stitch me back together? No, I don't. And I think that it's really important for people to love themselves and exactly what what Laura just said do whatever you want to your body to your face to to anything but do it because you're doing it for you not mm. because you feel like you need to do something to get a partner to be cooler for for Instagram you know so it's a it's a real catch 22 for me when i think about it and I, I, I get emotional about it because I hate to think that people are out there thinking that they have to go and change their entire look or their entire body because I can't get a boyfriend or I can't get a girlfriend, and the only way that's going to happen is if I get a facelift, a boob job, lip suction, uh, hair extensions—you know, the whole kitten can be. If you want to do that for you, go bonkers. But yeah, it's and it's not as easy as that. It's the, the annoying thing is when someone says just love yourself as you are. Mm. You know, that's a that's a long. Working progress for a lot of people, and I still wake up sometimes and I'm like, "Oh, I don't even want to look at myself today." Like, I, I, you know, you have a bad day, you don't feel good, you got your period, you, you've had way too much alcohol, and you're a bit swollen. Um, but yeah, it's it's something you work on forever, and I think a lot of people, it is a constant battle. The saying, "Like you have to love yourself
1: mm. before
0: anyone will love you," is utter bullshit. People will go through periods where they do not love themselves, but that doesn't make you unlovable. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that no one will love you. And I think sometimes we can be in a very negative headspace about how we love and perceive ourselves, but that doesn't make us unlovable. And that's really important.
2: People can love you with your wounds. Absolutely. With the battles, everything, yeah.
1: And Brittany, I want to talk about the sort of work that you've done. And I know you've spent quite a bit of time travelling, travelling wanderlust is such a big part of who you are. Mm. And also you spent some time with a Buddhist, Mm. with a monk, didn't you? That was such
2: a random time of my life. And uh, I attribute big changes in my life, big pivotal moments to that month. I spent a month with a Buddhist monk. And when I say a month, um, it wasn't a month intensive. It wasn't on top of a hill in Tibet where we didn't speak, it was...
1: That'd be very hard. It was a very... <laughs> Not to
2: speak. No, but I mean, this is crazy, right? I've been to nearly... For s- us. <laughs> but they do that. They do these silent retreats. I've been to nearly 60 countries, all like everywhere. And I ended up doing this in England of all places. I stumbled across him literally in the street one day. I caught... His robe caught my eye and I, I was like, what is that? And I looked. I looked down underground through this window. This sounds very like not ideal, but it was underground. I looked down, he looked up and there was this monk and we locked eyes and he waved and I waved. And then he just said, come, come in. And I was like, this could be a big trick and disastrous or this could be great. So I went in and we just chatted and he was there to do teachings. And I thought life has literally ushered me to this point. And, um, I could talk about him for a long time. He was hilarious. I know you don't think monks are hilarious, but he was a very funny monk. But he, over that month, the biggest thing that I took away from that, from him, and that I always tell people and that I live by is that bad things, heartbreak, tragedy, trauma are inescapable for all of us as humans. At some point in our life, it is going to happen but your life will be defined on your reaction to the situation, not the situation. And by that, I mean, we can't change the catalyst. We can't change whatever it was that has set us down this path, but we can decide if we get out of bed or not that day. We can decide if we want to hold on to that for six months. We can decide if we want to talk about that to a friend or or sit at home for the next year crying. And it's a different battle for everyone, how you deal with it. But it's your reaction will define your life, not the situation. The situation will not define your life. And I think that that's a really beautiful life lesson that I have taken forward. And I always try and teach other people.
1: It is a beautiful one because it's essentially about sometimes we don't have a choice about what happens in our lives, but we can choose how we decide to deal with it. And that's how you can then, I think, have power or feel empowered in a situation. Yeah, perception's it, a beautiful yeah. thing. As,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Especially when something's happened in your life
0: that you have been powerless to. Like when you, if it's because of the actions of someone else or whether it's the actions of just the universe that was something that was completely, feels like it has no point and no meaning. Maybe it's the death of someone, you know, and and I think that like those things, it's it's easy to sit on one side and say like, oh, it's how you react to it. But like ultimately it does come down to you and it does come down to whether or not you can work on moving past it or whether that one thing that happened to you or or many things that happened to you will
1: define you for the rest of your life. And you talk about that a little bit as well when you talk about your stepfather, who you mentioned was a heroin addict and the sort of impact that that had on you growing up and your family growing up.
0: Yeah, my parents got divorced when I was three and my mum got remarried when I was in primary school. It was a very complex time in our lives. And also, it was something that got worse as the years progressed. So when my mum, they got into a relationship, he wasn't a heroin addict at the time, but he was always very problematic. But his addiction increased over the years, his abuse increased over the years. So it was something that like the exposure increased. And I think like by then, my mum had a newborn baby with him. It was really hard for her to kind of leave and so that spanned from memory about 7 years. Um but I think like for me I I grew up in life and and like it was a really violent time in our household and I was absolutely terrified of him as a person.
1: And was he violent towards you and your mum? Yes. And he was just
0: um he was just very threatening in the things that he would say and do. So you kind of like lived scared of what the consequences would be around him and because obviously he had drug addiction issues, he was quite erratic and unpredictable. And that's probably the scariest thing is the unpredictability of someone. You don't know if you're going to get a good day with them or a bad day. And what does that look like for you? So I feel like we were always walking on eggshells because we were scared that he would snap. Um, But I grew up really really resilient and defiant that that time in my life wasn't going to define me, you know, and and I think I wore that as a real badge of honor. I was like, you know, yes, domestic violence was part of our childhood. Like that is something that happened, but it didn't define me. And I'm so capable and I'm so like, you know, I have my own businesses and I have all these other things going for me, but like my dating and relationships were just like constantly (laughs) not good, constantly not good. Um, And it was a really interesting sort of revelation for me. As much as I don't think my childhood defined me as a person, I definitely think it impacted how I viewed relationships. And I used to feel so, the right word for it, I used to feel so guilty And also so pathetic that I couldn't be alone. Like I always was in a relationship. I always would like go from one thing to another and then I would repeat the same mistakes. And I knew I was the common denominator, but I didn't know why I kept being attracted to these men who would cheat on me and then I would stay. And I just, I didn't have an answer for it. And to all my friends, it seemed so obvious that I should just leave. But to me, I was stuck. And then when I started to kind of unpack what my blueprint was for what made a good relationship, what I had been exposed to as a child, Kind of, you know, the fact that my mum had stayed in this relationship—that's what I had seen. It made more sense to me, and in no way do I say that as though I blame my parents or that even that I at the time I could identify it. But I think that, you know, if you haven't had a great role model in your life for what relationships should look like, how can you expect to become an adult who then navigates great relationships? Like, we're not taught that stuff. We get taught algebra. We don't get taught how to be like in loving and stable relationships until you either luckily fall into one or something happens where you go I want better for myself.
2: Well, it's a learned behavior, isn't it? It's like growing up without it's subconscious. This is what I'm exposed to, this is what I know, and that's how we learn as children by right? the the people that are the closest to us, the five people that surround us every day. Totally. So, it's without knowing it is a learned behavior that sometimes people need to relearn when they're older.
0: Yeah, and I think that the big thing especially for that as a topic attachment styles It wasn't like I kind of went, oh my gosh, like this revelation. It's just, it gave me the tools to stop being so hard on myself, like to stop blaming myself for having these like shitty relationships. But it also made me really conscious that I was like, okay, I know I'm doing that thing again. I know that the reason why I'm going back to that relationship isn't because I think it's going to turn out any different. It's because I'm scared of being alone. And where does that come from? Ah, that makes sense. And I think having that understanding just allowed me to be more purposeful in how my relationships unfolded as as opposed to just being carried along on this what sometimes felt like volatile and like emotional craziness um, where like there would be huge amazing highs and then crazy lows and I always felt like I was a passenger in my relationship and now I'm in the driving seat and that's really empowering.
1: Isn't it? It's beautiful hearing you describe that in a way and how you have turned your life into something yeah, so and it, magical and wonderful.
0: I guess my my worry with having these conversations more so was, and that's why we put it into the book, because we've done the podcast for three and a half years and I've never spoken about my childhood. And it was because I never wanted someone to be able to like listen to it and then to misinterpret. I think sometimes when we speak things and then it's rewritten into magazines or whatever, it can be misinterpreted out of context. And I would hate my mum to, to think that, I harbor animosity for that time or that like I even, that I even like, um, what's the right? Like that I even worry about it in terms or that I project anything. I think at the time she did the best that she could with the tools that she had based on what she knew. And we live in a very unique time now where there's so much access to self-help, self-improvement, podcasts. There's
2: so much information that you can arm yourself to better yourself. But not even self-help, help. 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 So like for someone in that situation now, we're we have the tools and the power and the knowledge, totally. the accessibility, the internet, the phone, there are helplines, there are centres you could go to. It wasn't like that always.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. And there's less stigma. Yes, the stigma I think is still around for some people to actually reach out, but very much the message now is I think if people are listening, if this brings up issues for people, please know that you're not alone. And by you sharing your stories in such beautiful ways, it reassures people that they're not alone.
0: Well, I think also what it goes to show is that, you know, I, I think for so many, for so long, we kind of thought that domestic violence and drug addiction happens in households of like low socioeconomic, we, it happens to like, it happens to someone else's family, happens over there, but couldn't possibly happen in my family. And there's a lot of judgment that's around it. And I guess when you hear people talk about it in a more kind of, we, when we when we unlift the veil on it and we say hey these things happened in my household and they can happen in any community they can happen at any socioeconomic I mean it can happen in literally any household and it doesn't make that person who is the victim, like they are the victim, you know, they didn't ask for it. They didn't stay longer it's than what they should fault. have. fault. They're not to blame. Yeah. And it's such an easy and dismissive thing to kind of think, well, why didn't they just leave? There are hundreds of reasons why people can't leave.
2: And it's, I mean, over the years, we've done quite a number of pretty heavy interviews with people that have. Been in just domestic violence situations, um, you know, have lost their lives. We've spoken to family members of people that have lost their lives oh, to domestic truly violence, horrific. um, truly very serious, horrific conversations. But we've had them because they're important and there have been reasons behind the we've had the conversations. But I'm, I'm really proud that Laura has gotten to a place now where she can talk about it and the control is hers, the power is hers, and she's done it in a safe place that she's happy with. And it's I'm
1: just proud of her. It's just nice to
2: see.
1: Him. Oh, no. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Yeah. Thanks, honey. Is there something, Brittany, that you wouldn't share with your audience? We do share a
2: lot. If we think someone's going to feel less alone or they're going to get a giggle out of it and it's going to pull them out of a dark place,
1: we share that. But, but people, also you share serious stuff too. I mean, you, were, yeah. you talk about freezing your eggs and going through that particular journey. I'm in my mid-30s.
2: I'm single. My fertility is not great and i've had this realization that quite possibly what i thought my life would look like might not happen and like i could i could cry right now thinking about it because it's it's something you don't expect to happen to you and um i don't get vulnerable often but i put this reel up i was like stuff it i'm going to do it i put this reel up of me being upset and just talking about my fears and the number of women that wrote to me saying you put that perfectly into words what i'm feeling and i, I I've always felt like I was the only one and they're the reasons that we do it. They're the reasons we do that. But there, there are definitely things that Laura and I both will never share and I think it's really important that people realise we don't tell every single aspect of our life. There are some things that we will always hold close to our heart. But at the end of the day, things like that, if someone's going to get something from it and it makes them feel better, that's why we do the podcast. I
1: definitely. hope, though, it, it made you feel less alone as well. Because sometimes I think as a woman, you do have this idea or notion of this is how my life is going to unfold. And by this age, this will happen and I'll be a mum or this and this and this. And often things don't go to plan.
2: And this is a realisation I've only just had as well, that the the amount of space and real estate that fertility holds in women's mind without even knowing, you might even you might not even think it's It's happening, but it is. As you age, we know we have a biological clock. We know that there are problems. If you're in a position like myself, and I know this now because a lot of women have written to me, but it holds space whether you want it to or not. You might not even know if you want to have kids. It's still holding space and it can be a very overwhelming feeling. I feel like I think about it a lot, even though I'm not desperate to have children. That's not it. But I don't really have a choice at the moment. I know that I don't want to do it on my own. Otherwise, for sure, I could do that. That's a personal thing. So I know I don't want to go down and get a sperm donor and do this alone. So for me, it's, well, maybe maybe it's not going to happen
1: and that's something I'm going to have to accept or reassess in a few years. And it's never helpful either when people like to remind you. (laughs) Oh, but, you know, time is running out, blah, blah, blah. I just want to strangle them. I'm well aware. Strangle them, yeah. like, no one's more aware than I am. Yes. So thank you. But
2: also I think it's a conversation we should be having more as women too about, I mean, we speak about it in pregnancy. Why you shouldn't say to someone, what are you having a baby? Because we don't know what they're going through. I think it's the same thing for a lot of women. Like, oh, they're just around the corner. Stop thinking about it. It'll happen when you least expect it. All very well-meaning, very innocent. But you're like, oh, man, you, th- like... Hello. Um, what do you that's want me to do? not helpful. Yeah. What mm. corner is it? How many corners are there? Where's the corner? Tell me. Send me in the direction. i are like mine there. got
0: lost along the way. Oh He's yeah, taking mine's a wrong
2: GPS turn. GPS is
1: going like bonkers. So, yeah, but uh, okay, I'm going to put my hand up and be one of those people. You are such a special soul, though, Brittany. Oh, thank you. You are. That's a there's going to be a beautiful <laughs> person. There is Brittany yeah, internally eye rolling one. right now. I, <laughs> I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually gonna be... not.
2: I'm not. That's a it's a lovely thing to say. I just get awkward with compliments, so I'm like.
1: (laughs) No, we need to to kind of take those compliments on board. I cannot let you both go without asking about Fingers in Bottoms. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, Jess. I, I think see- this is directed at Laura Byrne. I've been seeing this on your notes <laughs> I and I wondered when you were going to pull it out. I think the uh, right term for that was a pinky in the stinky. <gasps> is uh, Someone wrote in and they said, Laura looks like the type of person who would have anal sex, but not Brit. And I was like... We were both offended. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what that means. But like, Britney got offended that they thought she wouldn't do it. Yes. And I was offended that they thought I would do it. So I was like, I don't know which one's the right. Um, but I said uh, famously, which was wonderfully requoted. by by every single news outlet in Australia. Uh, I don't like to have anal sex, but uh, look, every, everyone likes a pinky in the stinky. And it turns out that not everyone does because a lot of women wrote to me to tell me that that's not the case. Jess, not- do you <laughs> like a pinky in the stinky?
2: I mean, Jessie's <laughs> going <laughs> to cut that right out of this episode. You can
0: say yes
1: or no because your producer's there. She can edit it. <laughs> bling, bling, twat. But before I answer that, what I want to ask about, though, is then it's reported and written about. Yes. How then... I suppose, does that make you feel? My,
0: look, this is, I think, I've had probably the worst version of this. Um, I once told a story on the podcast, and this is something that has... Like it stayed with me and it truly hurt me. I told a story on the podcast quite a while ago and it was that consent can come in many forms, right? Consent doesn't have to just be sexual. It can also it just be the way that someone treats you. And I said that in my early 20s, I dated a guy who used to think it was really funny when we had a shower together to try and pee on me, right? Disgusting. Disgusting. And I said that it was super degrading, but, but at the time and with my age, and because I didn't quite understand what that looked like in a relationship, I was like, oh, he's just trying to be funny. And I didn't really think about how degrading and what that actually implied for the rest of our relationship. The fact that he thought it was funny to piss on me. And so I said this story and it was all around consent. And then it was repurposed in the Daily Mail, which was like, Laura confesses sex act with ex. And I was like, wow, that's that's a crappy headline, but also I don't expect anything better. So I was like, kind of just let it go. Didn't dwell on it too much. Um, And also we're kind of used to getting a few crappy headlines. Look, that I was like, look, let that one slide. But when Britt and I had our radio show announced, we had a really awesome interview, or we thought it was awesome, um, with a big publication. Uh, There was going to be a full page newspaper publication about the radio announcement. And it's, It's hard being two women in media when you're like, we felt like we'd really achieved something. And we were like, surely that's enough of an article. Surely two women who started a podcast on their
2: own from literally nothing, who have now. In the
1: spare bedroom.
2: In a spare bedroom. After, with two kids, after 12 hour shifts in emergency, with earning no money for a long time. 34 million downloads. I was like, that's
0: a, like, yes, we did it. I'm so proud of us. And the journalist asked me, how does Matt feel about how much you share on the podcast? And I was like, oh. He's across it like I don't share anything, and I was like, "Is there anything specific that you think I've shared that I shouldn't have?" And it was kind of like, "No, no, no." The entire article was about m- this me sharing that I had been pissed on by an ex. That was the whole article. It was like Laura and Brittany get radio show, and they're so open and talk about the golden shower, and it was just this. So it was written in such a demeaning way it was purposely written in a way that was supposed to be like 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 look at how scandalous and like grotesque they are with the stuff that they talk about and they've been given a radio show and i read it and i was genuinely devastated i was like mm. i was like not only did did you interview us for 45 minutes you you wrote the entire article you wrote was based off a daily mail article that was not true and if it was true i would have no problems with it but i was like what do women have to do for their successes to just be enough to report on, that you have to have some sort of scandalous like side story to it. And and that's – and I, I, it just blew my – and that, that's probably the one big time where I was – I felt super disappointed. And did it stop me from sharing on the podcast? No. But did it make, Good. Did it make me a bit like – resentful and kind of, uh, kind of wary of the media, absolutely. Like I don't have time in a lot of ways for traditional media well, anymore.
2: It's because- the uphill battle of women yeah. in media of, of what, it, like exactly what you just said, what does a woman have to do now? How much do you have to achieve? I, well, I'm just going to throw something in I just thought about. <laughs> <laughs> Laura and I... For two years in a row, we're lucky enough to win the Listener's Choice Podcast Award. Oh, this was bad. This was the thing that got me the most. Again, I was like, what on earth do we have to do for somebody to just write one positive thing and be like, well done? We won this award, second year running. That Matt obviously came to the awards with us and we got a photo, Matt in the middle. He's, he's very a, he's, supportive. But he's you know? part of it. You know, it's we're all a little family. So we have a photo, Laura and I on either side, Matt in the middle. Smash this thing. It's amazing. And then the whole article was Matt upstages girls with how good he looks. Nothing about the awards, nothing about anything. It was all about how great Matt looked at our award. Suit. And I, I mean, we love Matt. Matt was on our side. But I just, that was what upset me. I was like, what do
1: we have to do? You know what you do. You keep you just doing what you're doing. Oh, and that's the thing. And you use yeah. your incredible show to keep saying, what matters because look at Do how you, it is resonating with people. That's yeah. what you keep doing. And one hundred and I'm a huge believer in there's always gonna be people who wanna pull you down, who are jealous, who are envious for whatever reason. But you rise above that and you just keep keep being true to who you both are because you're such amazing women who inspire so many people by what you do. But you do. and we're going to take take advice from anyone, (laughs) (laughs) it's an absolute queen like yourself.
2: (laughs) And
0: we are so lucky. We're so lucky for the incredible community that we have around us. We're so lucky for all of our listeners because it it genuinely is this really close-knit community. And I think that that is something, if anything, we're so lucky to have a platform where we can tell our story. So when things do happen... That make us feel upset or make us feel misrepresented. We're able to communicate the truth to the people who really matter, and that's really, really powerful. And I guess I, the thing that when it, when when these situations happen and we see it in the media, we see it with Lisa Wilkinson. Uh, the one of the one of the stories recently was like when she was sitting in the window having a cocktail by herself and how it was presented in a way that she was so sad and lonely that she must be by herself having a cocktail. We're or having the time of her life. Or we look at Zoe Foster-Blake, who's incredibly successful. She goes to the gym and all they write about is the expensive clothes that she wears to the gym. And you know why she wears expensive clothes to the gym? Because she owns an $84 million business. I would too. So she, would I. So she would anyone. hard. But it's opening people's eyes to how our perception of someone can be manipulated because of the way that the media writes about them and especially women. And I think that being a really conscious consumer is so important. And we could talk about that
2: for an hour, so
1: stop us there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I could talk to you both forever, but... I know I've got to oh, let I you go. Thank know. you so much for today.
0: We've oh, had such a great
1: time. Thank you we, both. We're never on this side of the podcast interview, so this is an absolute <laughs> treat for us. You're a
2: breath of fresh air. Your outfit's amazing. Your shoes are amazing. Everything is amazing. And the snort
1: is great. Oh, you? well, I love both of you. I think you're extraordinary women and you just keep blazing that trail and being true to who you are because it helps all of us be true to who we are too. Thank Thank you. you Aren't they just the best young women. Oh, I learn so much from talking with them, from reading their book. I really get why they resonate with so many of us. Now, if you want to get your hands on their book, We Love Love, an unfiltered A to Z of modern romance and self-love. It is available now wherever you get your books. And I tell you what, there was something in there for me, for my daughters. And I mean, I know we spoke about dick pics, but Let me just say, I'm so relieved I have never got one. And now for more big conversations like this, follow the Jethro Big Talk Show podcast so you'll know whenever a new episode drops. And while you're there, leave a review. I love to hear from you. Share it with a friend. The more, the merrier. And if you enjoyed this episode with Laura and Brittany, I reckon you'll love my chat with Abby Chatfield. One day I, I, I realised that when I edited photos of myself, I would get more likes. And I just started to feel a bit sick about it because I thought that's damaging my the way I see myself. I think the only way that I can get more likes is by editing how I actually look. And it was more about how it damages my psyche. So that's why I don't edit photos anymore. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.